13 for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from verses 1 to 10. Revelation 13, 1 to 10. I've reminded you in this series through Revelation to see the book more as a picture than as a puzzle. I've instructed you to see the cycles within the book of Revelation rather than the chronology. If we read of the book of Revelation, thank you. If we read of the book of Revelation that way, I believe we will get at the meaning of the book of Revelation better than trying to find a bee in every bonnet, trying to find a a secret meaning behind every text. In fact, in the text of Revelation, what we find more often than not is allusions to, hundreds of times, allusions to the Old Testament and the apocalyptic literature in the Old Testament that indeed talks about the end of time, but particularly talks about it in the light of God's big unfolding plan and His story. Where we are in Revelation today, in the 13th chapter, is the middle of what Vern Poitras calls the deeper conflict. There was seven letters to the churches, seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. There were throne room visions in chapters 4 and 5 which is similar to chapter 1 with regard to the grandeur of Christ our King our Lord and Savior. In chapters 6 to 7, we saw seven seals and then seven trumpets. And then in 15 and 16, we're going to see seven bowls. So if you're seeing a a cycle, a pattern of sevens, you're picking up on a salient point from the book of Revelation. Seven, of course, is the number of completion in the Bible. It's the number of perfection. Uh, The Lord structured the week to have seven days. And so seven minus one is six, the number of man. And Lord willing, if we're able to tackle the second half of this chapter next week, we will come to understand that six is an inferior number to seven, so much as man is an inferior inferior being to God. God created man, man did not create God, and we need the doctrine of God. We need to understand God for salvation, and He has made Himself known to us. He's communicated aspects of Himself to us through His Word And so it is a wonderful and a beautiful thing. Now, as much as God is beautiful, and we're going to see today the the beauty of God, Satan seeks to malign that. He seeks to impersonate that, to rewrite that script, to position himself as God. You may remember when Jesus, during his incarnate earthly ministry, After he was baptized, the Gospels picture him as whisked off into the desert, and he goes through his time of trial. And you may recall the way that the devil attempts to try to persuade Jesus by quoting the Bible itself in Deuteronomy three times. So Satan knows the Bible, first of all. And secondly, we see in that trial of Jesus in the desert, Jesus is hungry, he's He's in need, and fatigue makes cowards of us all, Vince Lombardi said. It does, doesn't it? When we're tired and we're hungry, hungry, we're prone to say and do things that we otherwise might not say and do. 
And so the devil comes with twisting of Scripture and comes with trying to position himself with power, power that usurps what he actually has. And he comes at Jesus and says, if you'll just worship me, I'll give you all of this. Well, there's some nuance to that claim. It's not Satan's to give, but there is an allowed-for dominion of Satan over a time. And in certain kingdoms, in certain governments, Satan seems to have more sway. And we're going to see this morning some of the tools of the enemy and how the enemy seeks to tempt us with a false vision of himself as God. In three words, Satan impersonates God. At the conclusion of our sermon time this morning, we will respond by taking the Lord's Supper, and we do invite all baptized believers in good standing with their local church to receive the supper with us. The elements are in a little packaging in your pew, so if you want to locate that after the sermon this morning, I will lead you in receiving that together as we remember the, the bloodshed of Christ and the body broken of Christ for our salvation. Now, without any further qualification, let's read together. I'll read to you. You hear together God's word from Revelation 13, 1 to 10. It says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and his great authority. One of, its, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he has given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? Verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. A simple comment about the text in verse 10. There are footnotes in your Bible. If you're reading a print Bible, you may notice the ESV Bible, which I'm reading from, has footnotes F and G, where it's references noting that this text is smashing up verses from the major prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, as well as a verse from Genesis as far as how it's referencing the Old Testament. So that's important for grasping, I think, our, our third part of this text. This is how we're going to take the text this morning. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4, and then 5 through 7, and then finally 8 through 10. I'm titling this sermon, Beating Blasphemous Beasts. Beating Blasphemous Beasts. But we're only going to talk about the first beast today. Next week we'll talk about the second beast, which is known as the false prophet. 
This week we look at the first beast that is listed, and this beast is listed after the dragon was listed in chapter 12. So if you, didn't, if you weren't with us for chapter 12, you may need to look back at the end of that and understand that the dragon is representative of Satan, who is counterfeiting God the Father and has made war on the offspring of Eve, has made war on us. And in fact, now we come to Revelation 13:1, and the beast is as a sort of counterfeit Christ. Beast number one is a sort of counterfeit Christ. So how do we beat the blasphemous beast? What is it that the, the blasphemous beast wants to do? What is it that is the, the modus operandi of Satan, we might say, and a counterfeit trinity? Bless you. And so remember our kind of three-word, very short little introduction there that Satan impersonates God. That's important for how we're looking at this this morning and trying to understand it. So our first point in verses 1 through 4 is going to be that Satan persuades many people. Satan persuades many people. And I'm going to give you some application for how how to deal with that as a believer as well, but we'll save that. So the first point is going to be Satan persuades many people. The second point from verses 5 and 6 is going to be Satan blasphemes God. Satan blasphemes God. And I think I misspoke a while ago. It's actually verses 7 through 10. I want to lump 7 with verses 8 through 10. And that third point is going to be Satan apparently conquers. Satan apparently conquers. So let's take it on its parts. The first point we want to make this morning comes from verses 1 through 4. Satan persuades many people. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that Satan is a persuader? In my introduction, I mentioned Matthew 4 and Luke 4 and Jesus' trial and what he went through in the desert. Uh, that was an attempt, an allowed attempt, of Satan to attempt to persuade our Savior. If you'll do this, I'll do that. If you'll do this, I'll do that. If you'll do this, I'll do that. And in those three attempted persuasions in the desert, the devil is constantly looking for an opportune time to persuade us with the merits of his case. You may remember in Genesis chapter 3, our first parents, before they and thus us were exited east of Eden, our first parents were tempted through the persuasion of the serpent. And we know who the serpent is. The serpent is Satan, right? Now, Satan seeks to be persuasive. And we find in this text this morning that Satan persuades many people. He's known here to believers, we see, as a beast rising out of the sea. A sea is meant to generate symbols and thoughts of scariness, of fear. Uh, This language here also indicates power. Ten horns, seven heads, ten diadems on its horns, blasphemous names on its heads. It's indicating power. There's fear struck into the hearts of men because of the power of this beast, but there's a persuasiveness within this authority as well, even though it is a derivative authority. And the persuasiveness shouldn't, it won't persuade the believers, as we're going to see at the end part of this text. There is a persuasiveness with anyone that would have a form of godliness but deny the power therein, with anyone that would consider themselves not to be followers of the Lord, with anyone that would be fortified in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a persuasive power. Most folks would not say, I'm going to be persuaded by Satan. But the reality is, is that Satan seeks to persuade, and many will. 
In order to grasp the context within this first point, I want to jump to the book of Daniel, chapter 6, verse 27, through chapter 7, verse 8. You may reference that, write it down, turn there, just listen. I believe the words will be on the screen. But there is, this is in mind in Revelation 13. Daniel 6, during the time of the reign in the Persian Empire, and King Darius, Cyrus, as well as reference here to Belshazzar, king of Babylon, we're going to see a prophetic utterance that impacts how we're to understand Revelation. So listen to, to Daniel 6, 27. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions, referencing Daniel in the lion's den. So this is a reference to the power of God. And so verse 28 this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and during the reign of Cyrus the Persian. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told to rise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Dominion was given to it. And this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, and had great iron teeth that devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. And from there in Daniel, we read about the Ancient of Days, things that make for wondrous praise toward our Savior. But what I'm going to pull out here is the language of the beast. And what we find in Revelation seems to be beast combined into a figure and also uh, an, another figure. But this week we're talking about the beast himself as a counterfeit of Christ. Poitras says it like this, The beast is a counterfeit of Christ. Note these parallels. The beast is an image of Satan whom Satan brought forth. Just as Christ is the exact image of God begotten by the Father. The beast has ten crowns, while Christ has many crowns. The beast has blasphemous names written on him, while Christ has worthy names. The, the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. Revelation 13:2. Just as Christ has power and the throne and authority from the Father. The beast has a fatal wound counterfeiting Christ's resurrection, Revelation 13.3. The beast's healing is one of the principal features that attracts followers or persuades followers, just as the resurrection of Christ is one of the principal points of evangelistic proclamation. Worship is directed both to the dragon and the beast, just as Christians worship the Father and the Son. The beast attracts the worship of the whole world, Revelation 13.3, just as Christ is to be worshipped universally. The beast utters blasphemies, while Christ utters praises of God. The beast makes war against the saints, while Christ makes war against the beast. The song of praise to the beast in Revelation 13.4, which we just read, 
counterfeits the song to God the warrior in Exodus 15.11. The striking juxtaposition of Christ and the beast in Revelation 19 shows that these two are the two main warriors in the battle. Christ is the divine warrior fulfilling the imagery of Exodus 15 and major and minor prophets alike. The beast is the unholy counterfeit warrior fulfilling the imagery of Daniel 7, 1-8, which we just read as a cross-reference. Satan himself attempts to counterfeit God the Father. He engages in a mock creation in which he brings forth his image out of chaotic waters, out of the sea, parallel to Genesis 1, 2. So, Let's look at these four verses again with that helpful commentary and with the cross-reference from Daniel 7 to round out and apply our first point about how Satan persuades many people. He is a counterfeit, but he is not a bad counterfeit. If Satan were a dollar bill, it would not be obvious that the dollar bill was counterfeit without a trained eye. You would need to have some training in counterfeiting in order to understand it. So listen to these verses again knowing now what we know. Revelation 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast and they worshiped the dragon. You see that language? Followership, it seems almost like following Christ, right? Discipleship. Worship, what are we supposed to do? All praise is to be to Christ, right? That's how we sing. We're not to give homage to anyone else. And whether that be Caesar in the first century or any other person that you might be tempted to idolize, we're also not to put ourselves in the place of God. It's an issue of worship. It's an issue of followership. And it says, finally here, strikingly, in verse 4, and they worship the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, I think father, son, and they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Now that, that is just ripping off Exodus, isn't it? Who's like our God? Who can fight against him? What is Satan positioning himself as, but as an angel of the light? In fact, positioning himself as God and what did Satan do to get his boot from heaven? Right? He was treasonous against God. He's, what did Satan do? He wanted to take the place of God. What did Satan do to tempt our first parents? God's just trying to keep something from you with that fruit that you're not to eat. Let alone all these beautiful things that he's given you. This communion with himself, but you can't have that thing. And knowledge of good and evil is what Satan wanted them to have. Or Satan... Misery loves company. That is verses 1 to 4. Satan is persuasive, though. Satan is persuasive to the unbeliever, to be sure, for they're crowded with a powerful delusion. They're blinded. And I want to say to you as a believer, you need not be afraid that Satan persuades many people. That means that logically that Satan will persuade you. It is true that we can all get tripped up from time to time and not think rightly about some aspect of God, of the personal work of Christ. None of us are arrived in our understandings of God's revealed Word. None of us have made it yet. We're still on the road to sanctification. But you are on the Word. You are on the road, rather. And I want to say to you this morning 
But Satan will not ultimately persuade a believer. Now, I'm stealing the thunder of my third and final point, but I think it's worth it here in this first point because when I declare that Satan persuades many people, I don't want to indicate that Satan persuades you to follow him because you won't. And one of the ways that you won't is the ordinary means of grace of things like this when we get together and we get into God's Word together and we read together and we study deeply as a church, we begin to have a trained eye and trained ears that we might see and hear and behold the things of God and in beholding things of God, know when something doesn't sound right, doesn't look right, doesn't smell right. We can sense a counterfeit because... We're like a, a federal agent trained to know a real dollar bill from a fake one over time. So it, it's a cry not to shortchange the ordinary means of grace that is us gathering and praying the Word and reading the Word, preaching the Word, hearing the Word together, your private devotions, your family worship time. But it's also an assurance. I, I don't want to make this a moral imperative so much as I want to say you won't be persuaded ultimately to follow Satan because you're Christ's. And you have a trained eye and a trained ear. And you're gaining a trained eye and a trained ear. What blessed assurance, right? What wonderful assurance. But also a lamentable reality that there are unbelievers that in a, a culture that is known for nominal Christianity, when given hard choices about their lives, will not follow Christ, but actually will be persuaded by the enemy. In times of persecution against the church, and there have been many, there's lots of persecution in the world right now. If you read the voice of the martyrs, if you, if you look at history itself, there are great waves of persecution. There were ten of them in the Roman Empire itself. There have been great waves of persecution throughout the history of the church. And in times of persecution, when it doesn't pay to be a professing Christian, Christians of the nominal variety will be persuaded other directions. Not so with you. Christians that are not really Christians will be persuaded away from Christ. But Christ's sincere followers will not. Now, this means, by way of application, that you need to, as the Bible study says that we've done in the church, behold your God. You need to look to Christ and understand the doctrine of God and seek to understand it more and more deeply that you would be able to tell the real from the false Always at its core, it's an issue of worship and followerships. May followership, may we have trained eyes on the doctrine of God. May we know how to explain God and may we behold God based on how He's revealed Himself to us through His revelation, through His Word. Not just revelation as in the, the last book of the Bible, but the whole revelation, what He's made known to us about Himself. That is what we are not only responsible for, but we're blessed to be able to have. So hold to what is good. Adoration begins with worship. It should start all of your prayers. It should be how you lean into the worship services. This is about a vertical approach. We're, we are beholding God. We're hearing from God today. And one of the great benefits of that is in beholding God, we will not be persuaded as the unbelievers will by the persuasive ways of Satan. Now, number two, verses five and six, we're going to see that Satan blasphemes God. Now, this is a rather obvious point. But let's read the text again. Satan blasphemes God. It says here, And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. So for a time, or a half time, 
half of a sabbatical year cycle. It was a short. It was not a not an endless amount of time. But there is an authority derivatively that, that Satan is allowed to wield for a time. Verse six. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven. And I just wanted to stop it there after verse. Six. I toyed with going on to verse 7, but I'm going to leave that for the last point. So just shorter point, two verses, and nevertheless, I believe, a helpful point for us here. And, and that is that Satan blasphemes God. The root of this is pride. Dictionary.com defines blasphemy as impious utterance concerning sacred things. Impious utterance concerning sacred things. Reviling God. Assuming to oneself the rights or qualities of God. Blasphemy. Uh, I, would, I would kind of like the very simple def- definition that the editors at the Got Questions website gives. They say that blasphemy is very simply put, defiant irreverence. It's defiant irreverence. They write, followers of God are responsible to make sure their behavior doesn't incite others to blaspheme God. In Romans 2, Paul scolds those who claim to be saved through the law and yet still live in sin. Using Isaiah 52, Paul tells them, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In 1 Timothy 1.20, Paul explains that he had abandoned two false teachers to Satan so that they would, quote, be taught not to blaspheme, end quote, thus promoting false doctrine and leading God's people astray, which is also a form of blasphemy. Jesus spoke of a special type of blasphemy, though, specific kind of blasphemy, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And this was committed by the religious leaders of his day. The situation was that the Pharisees were eyewitnesses to Jesus' miracles, and they attributed the work of the Holy Spirit to the presence of a demon. You can read about it in Mark chapter 3. Their portrayal of the holy as demonic was a deliberate, insulting rejection of God. The most significant accusation of blasphemy was one that happened to be completely false. It was for the crime of blasphemy that the priests condemned Jesus. They understood that Jesus was claiming to be God. Which, by the way, you don't need to sit around worrying that you're going to commit the unpardonable sin. As a believer, you're not going to do that. The only unpardonable sin is the sin of unrepentance and unbelief, which does not describe you. These are people on the highway to hell because they could not identify Jesus as Messiah. That's the problem in view here. Finishing the direct quote from the Got Questions editors, which I think is helpful, it said that they then understood that Jesus was claiming to be God. They were right about that claim. And that would be a reproach on God's character if, in fact, it wasn't true. Right? But if Jesus were just a man claiming to be God, he would have been a blasphemer. However, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus could truthfully claim deity. And so Jesus was not blaspheming, even though he was charged with it, because Jesus is God. So, saved people are not committing blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This was a sin committed by unelect religious leaders during Jesus' incarnate ministry. However, there is an unpardonable sin, as I've said, and that is persistent unbelief. So, I want to I deviate from speaking specifically to believers this morning, to those of you instead speak for just a minute or two to unbelievers. I want you to understand that it is no small thing to blaspheme the holy. I want you to understand that you do not have to persist in your unbelief and unrepentedness, but that if you do, 
you will face eternal separation from the God that made you. If you persist in your unbelief, you will not spend eternity with God. I want you to come with us to where we're going. I want you to be a part of the people of God. And I need to tell you this morning, we have not perfectly showed you Christ, yours included. There are times in which my life pattern and our life pattern as this local church does not compel you to follow Christ. I hope in our better moments we do, but what I'm calling you to with regard to following Christ is not following a person. It's not following me. I mean, it is a person. It's Christ, but not following one of us, one of Christ's people. I'm asking you to see the perfect work of Christ that we're trying to show you the way to and understand that you must follow Him and not some counterfeit of yourself or some false Savior if you want to make it with God for eternity. And I want you to understand as well that in following Christ, what you find is your complete inability to do it. And that's really how we know that we're saved. When you humble yourself, you repent of your sin, you trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you realize how inadequate you are to save yourself. And that is the point of the gospel. So as an unbeliever, I want you to move from unbelief to belief this morning by coming to a realization that you cannot save yourself, by coming to a realization through the power of the Holy Spirit, that's the only way you're going to get there. I cannot manufacture this today. I'm to preach the gospel. I'll leave the results to the Spirit's work within you. But as the Spirit's working in you, I want you to move from unbelief to belief and trust in this Messiah and have great assurance of eternal life. He is no counterfeit because Jesus is God. And you will not have to be susceptible to the punishment of hell because of your rebellion against God or the persuasion of Satan any longer if you'll just put your faith in Christ and walk with Him. His grace will get you all the way home. Now, within this second point of three, I want to say to all of us believers, and and I hope you're not an unbeliever, but if you are alike, I want you to understand that Satan blasphemes God. I want you to understand he does it in pride. And so for us, we need to, same as we behold our God, because Satan is persuasive and we need to have a doctrine of God that fortifies us against counterfeits. Here in the second point, we need to beware of our tongues. So behold your God, beware your tongue. There's application to the second point. Uh, we, we don't want to speak in ways that doesn't rightly reflect God. And we want to be re- precise with language. And we don't want to speak in ways that elucidates human pride. We want to crucify pride day by day as God's mercies are being made new in our lives each day. We don't want to seem defiant or irreverent. We want to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so let us beware our tongue so that when we speak, we're speaking the words of life. We're speaking the words of God from Scripture as we're learning them and not as haughty human beings. Pride is indeed a tripwire for us, but the Lord is helping us to crucify our pride. Let us lean into that help. Let us embrace that help today. It says that the beast was haughty and blasphemous in his wording. May us, may we not be, as God's people, haughty, defined as haughty and blasphemous in our words, unless that, that articulation, that charge is a false charge like it was against our Lord. So, what we have seen so far this morning is 
the persuasion of Satan and the blasphemy of Satan through his counterfeit savior, the beast. And then finally today, what we are going to see is that Satan apparently conquers. Verses 7 through 10, apparently is the key word in this construction. Satan apparently conquers. There's a lot hanging on that word, apparently. Listen again afresh to verses 7 through 10. Also, it was allowed, that being the beast, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. All authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Now, can that mean that everyone who dwells on earth is worshiping the beast? Just like when we talk about the doctrine of election, we have to think about the range of meaning of all and the construct of all in every place that it's, that it's articulated in the Bible. It cannot mean that the elect worship Satan, right? That's not what it means. The apparentness here is, is that everyone that's not an avid and devote, devout follower of Christ will be guilty of worshiping the enemy because by virtue of the fact they won't believe the one true Lord and by virtue of the fact that economies of trade will, will come to depend on the worship of Satan. So listen to how this lays out for that, for that information. It says here that in verse, verse 8, And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world, in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So you see the qualification is implied. The elect from the foundation of the world will not worship the false lamb. It will not worship the false resurrected. Verse 9, then he's going to now quote major prophets and the law. And he says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. It's the only imperative verb in all ten of these verses. Hear, hear, big billboard, you all hear. People of God here, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. And then finally, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So what are we to make of this? What do we make of these verses? I, I like what Steve Gregg says in his commentary about this. I'll read it to you straightway. He says of the beast from the sea, When persecution of the saints becomes a governmental policy then the persecuted have no recourse to legal protections and have nowhere to hide. State persecution of the church has thus always been one of Satan's most devastating means of discouraging the church, often driving her underground, as some of the emperors and even modern communist states have done. Governments love to play God to command the admiration and loyalty of their subjects and to assume to themselves even more numerous prerogatives, including those which must belong to God alone. Not a few empires have required that their subjects actually worship them as deities. Think of Pharaoh in Egypt or Nebuchadnezzar in Babylonia or, or Darius in Persia and numerous Roman emperors. These Few empire, these empires, not a few empires, they discontinue the worship of the true God in deference to the state's wishes, as modern communist states have done as well. Though Paul tells us that governments are ordained by God to enforce good conduct and restrain and punish criminal behavior, under Satan's influence, these governments misuse power. The repeat use of the words was given in Revelation 13 it says, was given in verses 5 and verse 7. It also says, was granted in verse 7. The repeated use of that word emphasizes that the power of evil in these particular governances 
are not, the power is not absolute, but rather it is contingent upon God's sovereign allowance, end quote. So I want to try to unpack that and this because I think it's, it's a mouthful of truth, but it's, it is not an easy thing to grasp. So look at verse 7 again. Also, it was allowed, that is the beast, notice the word allowed, to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And as I've said, it's an apparent conquest. So it, it, it looks as if evil will triumph. I know of a pastor that says it's very important for the people of God to always strive to see more of what God is doing in the world than Satan. That's not an easy thing to do. We tend, bless you, by nature, all this cutting grass and weeds has got a sneezing in here this morning, and out of just sheer desire to be polite, I say bless you every time someone sneezes. So if you're wondering why I'm saying bless you, it's not number 624 over and over again. I'm just trying to be kind to the people as they're sneezing. But at, at any rate, with regard to this, allowed to make war, it is a contingent authority. It's, it's, it's an under power. God allows it. Now, why does God allow? I don't, I don't know why God allows and for what time. But this, this making war against the saints is most seen when governments are the most coerced. When a government becomes most coerced, it's unveiled that they really do hate Christ's followers. This is really easy to see with a simple study of history, and many illustrations would make the point, but it's beyond the scope of what we can do today. We don't have time for that. Simply to say that if you go to a truly totalitarian state, they have no problem with a state church that kowtows to the government. But if you're actually a Christ proclaimer, as there's only every knee and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord, and we don't bow the knee to any Caesar, we only bow the knee to Christ. If you actually proclaim that and preach that, you'll find yourself under intense persecution in totalitarian states. There's nothing more coercive than the authentic preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's absolutely coercive. We also make great citizens in the world, but we do not make great subjects to be ruled because we have a higher allegiance. We have a great ruler. We have, we have Christ. None of us will have a problem with the absolute dominion of Christ. None of us will. We're believers. We're going to relish the good and noble kingship of Christ in this, in forevermore. But we do have a problem with kings that set themselves up as Christ. This is a perennial issue. It is a trip hazard for ordained governments that they will overplay their hand and think of themselves not only as having the delegated right to wield the sword for the good of the people in their particular kingdom, but they will actually use the sword for folks to, to punish folks that are actually doing the Lord's will within their empire. What we are to do is to hear this text. We, that we are to hear Isaiah and Jeremiah in light of coercive governments, and we are not to be tempted to think that we win our battles, strictly speaking, by taking up a sword and punishing people with a physical sword for that which they do to us that is wrong. No, God has allowed government to exist, and there are certainly limits to the government's authority. I don't question that. But as an individual Christian, I want you to understand that if you live in a perpetual state of anger, of fury, and of anxiety, if you live that way, and if you believe yourself to going to make all wrongs right, by leading some kind of a rampant charge with a physical sword, I would ask you to read Matthew 26 and to consider that Jesus said, put your sword away. Put it up. 
ours by and large is to put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Jesus had this text in mind in Matthew 26:52. John has this text in mind in Revelation 13. If you take up the sword, you perish by the sword. You live by the sword, you die by the sword, you've heard it said. But ours is a different kind of sword, right? I'm not talking about the right use of authority. I'm not talking about military service. No, I'm talking about you as an individual living in a spun-up state. That's what I'm talking about. What sword are you supposed to have that you use day-to-day and week-to-week to fight the Lord's battle and do the Lord's will? What are you supposed to use? The sword of the Lord. What is that? It's the Bible. Well, if you want to be a warrior for Christ... I guess you need to study the Word. Obviously, there are applications within that. I'm not trying to flatten out and say that you don't have different vocations. That's just not the point. And the thrust of this is, the thrust of this is, we don't live by the governmental sword and die, strictly speaking, by the governmental sword. Ours is the Word of life. The sword of the Lord is how we proclaim and take forward the charge of Christ. And in doing that, What we find is we bump up against all kinds of other authorities and other interests, but we just stay with that message, and we stay with the message of the Word of Christ, preaching the Word and teaching the Word. And I don't just mean preaching from here. I mean proclaiming the Word to all who will listen. And we see God's will done. God wants to use us to further the gospel proclamation in the world. Now, look at this, because this is very interesting in this text. It says that it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, apparently, because the Bible says in Revelation 2 that we don't have to fear the second death. It says at other places, we only have to understand that He has the capacity to conquer us physically in the first death, but we'll never never die a second death, for that is for the unsaved. We're protected in Christ after we die we are, in fact, in the presence of Christ, to live as Christ and to die as game. But look at verse 7. It's a very interesting text. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Where have you heard that jingle before? Every tribe and people and language and nation. Where have you heard that? Missions, right? Doesn't that sound like a missions jingle? We're going to take the gospel to every tribe and people and language and nation. This plays back to the first point. Satan is interested in persuading and manipulating every tribe and people and language and nation too. If you want to draw some philosophical inferences there, maybe that's the place to do it. Differently, Satan's on mission. Satan impersonates God. Satan masquerades as an angel of the light. One thing that we must take from the reading of the thick part of the middle of Revelation is that Satan doesn't run around in a a red outfit with a pitchfork. That caricature is about as unhelpful as Noah's Ark caricature being a bathroom toy. It completely misrepresents what's going on. The reason Satan is such a scary beast is because of his powers of persuasion. Many, many will be tripped up by the worldly and deceitfulness and the schemes of this enemy. But I want to encourage you, as John MacArthur says on this text... He says, with regard to verse 8, "...from the foundation of the world, according to God's eternal electing purpose before creation, the death of Christ seals the redemption of the elect forever. Antichrist can never take away the salvation of the elect." That's you, believers. Antichrist can never take that salvation from you. It was purchased by the blood of Christ, which we will celebrate in taking the Lord's Supper in mere moments. It cannot be taken from you. Everyone who takes up the sword will die by the sword. 
But understand this, elect of the Lord. The sword of the Lord is the word, and the word is for you, and God has revealed himself to you for your good, so believe your salvation. Do not think that Satan is going to have his way forevermore. See what God is doing in the world for every tribe and people, language, and nation because folks are coming to faith in Christ and churches are being established and we are conquering even if there is an apparent conquest of us. So as Satan persuades people, understand you won't be persuaded. You're not going to be persuaded because you're Christ's. As Satan blasphemes God, understand you're not guilty of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because Christ has redeemed you from every misappropriated word that you said before you knew him. And for that matter, he's redeemed us for the words we've said after. We're not there yet. And finally, with regard to Satan, Satan living on this mission and apparently conquering God's people, he's not going to win. He is not going to get the last laugh. His is the abyss. He roams for a time, but his is the abyss. Understand, redeemed of the Lord, Antichrist can never take away your salvation. Believe your salvation. Behold your God. Beware your words. Believe your salvation. His grace is enough. Bow your heads with me, please, as we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the reassurances that come at the end of this scary text that this is a call to faithful endurance for the saints. For you call us saints. You see us for that which we will be. You see us for that which we are. We will be sanctified, and we are yours. And because of that, we come with great confidence and bold assurance to your table, remembering what you have secured for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we take the supper, let's